Hello and welcome to episode three, part two of the Double Reel Film Podcast, your go-to monthly source of nerdy film content. If you had an extended intermission between parts, you may benefit from a recap. And if you've plowed on through without a gap, you don't need a recap, but you're going to have to sit through it anyway. So, previously on episode three, part one of Double Reel, we had a roundup of a month in the life of a busy film nerd, including my first trip to a drive-in cinema. A look at a classic film, which was a Hitchcockian French classic, Les Diaboliques, and the first part of this month's James Adamson in Conversation with James Adamson, in which we covered the Oscars for Best Picture and other things from the 80s to the last decade. Coming up now, the concluding part of the Adamsons dissecting the recent history of the Oscars, then the hidden gem looking at Ridley Scott's lesser-known debut film, The Duelists, the one that got away looking at the original unsuccessful plan to make Total Recall with David Cronenberg at the helm, and the remake hate watch of the politically divisive 2016 reboot of Ghostbusters. And now, back to the Oscar chat with the two James Adamsons. So that's where we got to with our review of the four uh, decades, the 80s, 90s, uh, noughties and teens, to to review how they did in terms of their Oscar performance. Uh, James, do you have a view on whether a particular decade was worse? The 90s wasn't great, was it? The 90s just sort of jumped out. I mean, there are some really terrible ones there. Titanic, Shakespeare in Love, Dances with Wolves. I don't think there's any like my my ones. I've tried to throw in a couple of like kind of like funny ones, like South Park not winning. But there's I can't really complain with a lot of them. It's just kind of yeah. one of those things where for most of my ones, it's like oh well, Ian McKellen didn't win for Gandalf, Jim Broadbent won for Iris, but you can't really complain with that. There's things like Chicago in my one though, which is pretty bad. Yeah, and um, I think what you picked out was probably the last the last decade hasn't been that bad. Although there have been a few, in terms of the best film, there were a couple of glaring ones, but mostly, you know, they weren't too bad. I mean, the thing that you picked out on was uh, some of the lower down Oscars or not, you know, best picture, but you think David Fincher was pretty prominent, but didn't get much of a look in. That's a bit, bit unfair. And Hans Zimmer, as you say, there's a couple of times where very, you know, much weaker stuff won. And you also noticed, or you seem to think, Oscars seem to be getting handed, up, shared out a bit more now. There's not many kind of enormous yeah. winners anymore, um, is there? Yeah, we don't really have, you know, 11 winners like Return of the King and Titanic do, as much of an injustice Titanic was. You don't have films like that anymore. You, Parasite yeah. won, I think it was six. Um, Mad Max, Fury Road won five. So it's one of those things where they, they try and spread yeah. out. I, I think we've spoke about this before, about why we think it's just, you know, as soon as you attach an Oscar to a film, it's like, ooh, it must be good. It's won an Oscar kind of thing. Yeah, yeah I mean, the purpose uh, of Oscars is obviously to promote the industry, isn't it? It's like, look how many good films there were this year. So it doesn't serve their purpose for only one film to win all the Oscars. You know, they want lot, lot, lots of lots of films need to, need to be able to say they've won a bunch of awards so that they can say the industry's in good shape. Yeah. There's also films that I think that they benefit from from the Oscar. It's not like Moonlight. I mean, that was a very, very small film, and I'm sure a lot more people have watched it, me included, because it won Oscars. You know, it was like, hey, that's a good film. And it's also a, it's also it a good film to, to win Oscars and draw attention to because it's a, you know it's about a, a young black guy trying to figure out who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, that's yeah. A I mean, really important film to be winning Oscars personally. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think I think that's an example of Oscars. Doing, doing their job, if you see what I mean. You said it, like we should discuss if there's been a change in Oscars. The only change I'll say is that, yes, Oscars get spread out thinner, you know, like to obviously promote the industry. It's more of an attitude change that they need to have towards Oscars. Like Christopher Nolan has directed two of the best films of the past 12, 13 years by, by a country mile, but because it's a superhero flick or it's a sci-fi film, no matter how good it is, the same thing happened with things like Fight Club. Fight Club is comfortably the best film of 1999. It's comfortably the best film of that year, but because it's, you know, a, you know it's absolutely bonkers, it's nice to see... Um, certain, yeah, certain films from certain genres. I mean, that's that's the reason Get Out didn't win more Oscars, is because you almost think they... They almost feel like they it's doing well for a horror film. To, to be recognised at all, if you see what I mean, because that's a genre that just doesn't get a great deal of recognition. Yeah, it's nice to see. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's nice to see films like Get Out, you know, getting a bit more recognition. You know, like Best. Um, I think it was original screenplay for Jordan Peele, but it's nice to see Heath Ledger winning Best Supporting Actor for the Joker, and yeah. Joaquin Phoenix winning for um, for the Joker. It's nice to see roles from films like that, um, you know, getting you know, more recognition, but nine times out of ten, you know, the person that's going to win Best Actor is, you know, probably from a, a you know, a biograph, a biograph from Renee Zellweger winning for Judy Garland. 
there's not many films in the last 10 years where you wonder what people were thinking for the best film yeah. and they've off, they've often gone for things that are a bit actually that's not a, a, as safe a film as you might think you know to, yes. to have won best picture regarding the acting though I, I you can almost kind of say if someone wants to win an oscar for the for their acting they can kind of look at the parts and know which one's going to win it's, it is getting better we're still going to have a knock-on effect like amy adams is going to win a year that you know say should have gone to cynthia erivo for um you know yeah. one for harry tubman and then she does another film. Amy Adams is going to win because she's done a film that's not as good as the other performances, but it's Amy Adams, so we should probably give her an offer. Yeah, you, you still have those things, don't you, where people win because it's about time they won one, and then someone else who's given the performance of their life and might not get another chance gets overlooked. That's happened a few times, hasn't it? Although saying that, they've got better with that in the sense that Emma Stone won an Oscar, which was that her first Best Actress nomination? Um, I think she might have got a Supporting Actress nomination in the past. Birdman, I think. Yeah, yeah. and then um, yeah. Olivia Coleman winning for the favourite that was her first nomination that was, it was rightfully really deserved um, so I think we're finding less that hopefully there's going to be less sort of catch up with it so if we were to compare our two decades side by side I think we could probably agree that the 80s and 90s were worse than the noughties and 2000s and tens i like the problems with your decades so i think that probably makes sure that yeah I, th I think i think we've had a couple of decades of gradually putting a few things right haven't we so i was going to suggest that we move on now unless you've got any other like decade coverage to do uh, that we might put down some nominations what we would say the worst oscar winners are shakespeare in love chicago's pretty crap isn't it chicago is crap I'm going to lay down my shortlist of what I think the, the most un the worst Oscar winners, regardless of who else was on the ballot that year. Um, Stevie Wonder winning a Best Song Oscar for I Just Called to Say I Love You. <laughs> it is hard to look past Rocky winning Best Picture. <laughs> that is, yeah, I mean, I that sticks out. Like it's a great series and I will watch it and I like the Creed films. The, the 70s are decades, we have strong decades for some of the great auteurs and you think Rocky, really? Um, I'm, I'm going to put it out there. It, it seems churlish when she's the only um, woman of colour or sort of African-American woman to win a Best Actress, but Halle Berry winning Best Actress is not really that well-deserved. I know she was quite good in that film, but Gwyneth Paltrow winning Best Actress for Shakespeare in Love when all she did was put on an English accent. So those are my worst. I just, you know, uh, can't see past those. I don't know if you've got any other worst ones. I feel bad for um, Apocalypse now. I feel like that didn't win enough Oscars when it should have. It won um, Cinematography and Sound, and I thought it was the best picture of 1979. Um, but I, th I think the worst one, it probably has to be Shakespeare in Love or Chicago, especially when you compare it to the films that came out that year. Yeah, Shakespeare in Love, Love sorry, should not be beating uh, Saving Private Ride to best picture. <laughs> sorry, I know we discussed it, but you say it out loud like that, and it still takes me aback. Yes. I just, I just right. don't get it. So we're kind of we're kind of leading into Oscar snubs and injustices now, aren't we? Because we're not we're not just talking about the worst foot winners, because that's almost a bit harsh on on you know an individual. But yeah. there are times you can look back and things and say certain there was some, there's been some great injustices. Now we talked about the color purple. Spielberg was almost punished for daring to make a film that's not his usual type of film. Yeah, and there was a lot of snobbery about Spielberg back, back then. But what it meant was. There was a bunch of great acting roles for black actors that, you know, even now you don't get that many. Whoopi Goldberg gave a career best performance. Oprah Winfrey gave a really good performance, by the way. Um, and what sort of lesson is it that you don't, that the Colour Purple wins no Oscars and the best best picture of that year goes to a film essentially about rich white people poncing about in Africa? Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese has been ill-treated by the Oscars and 2006 was like the year, big apology year really. It was like, sorry, sorry Martin, have an award. Yeah, you, you find that and I feel like if Ridley Scott makes another great film, that, but not, not another great film because nothing will be as good as Alien or Gladiator or Blade Runner personally, Yeah, but he'll make another film that is excellent. Or even The Duelist. The Duelist hasn't yet spoken about enough. The Duelist is an awesome film. In terms of directors who've been ill-treated, Alfred Hitchcock never won anything. Yeah. Vertigo didn't even get any nominations which is shocking that is wild um, and David Fincher I don't know what David Fincher has to do to win an Oscar well to be honest I'd, I'd be putting Christopher Nolan above David Fincher Hitchcock Hitchcock's a bit you know a bit late now seeing as he has passed away mm. the, the direct, two directors that you know we've just discussed two of them are still living and Christopher Nolan's got to win an Oscar above both surely um, I want to. Sergio Leone was was ill treated. I mean, but th I mean, three contemporary directors who, in other circumstances, would be you know getting showered with awards. And I still, I'm not sure quite why they're not. Spike Lee, Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson. They're not. You can't accuse their films of just pandering to the multiplexes, but they haven't got the credit for direction that they deserve either. 
Yeah, um, I feel like the, the directors you've named, though, are they make a they make a specific type of film and they don't like making films that will pander to the masses. Because yeah. see Black Klansman getting nominated, but yeah, that's in twenty eighteen. Yeah, do the right thing was you know very harsh street. Malcolm X not even nominated for best best film or best director, and oh. without I know I'm going to get accused of playing a race card, but in what way does Malcolm X differ from something like Gandhi or or Darkest Hour um, in terms of playing a great and interesting and complex and important character in a brilliantly made film? But funny how the I know I know Malcolm X is controversial, but that film does everything a, a film normally needs to do to win a ton of Oscars. And you always wonder because it's Spike Lee and he's a bit outspoken because it's a black central character, it just doesn't get the same recognition. Well, yeah, and it's also Gandhi happened in India. You know, the events of Gandhi happened in India, whereas the events of Malcolm X happened in America, and it makes it makes a typically whitewashed industry and award ceremony in the Oscars look at themselves kind of thing well, this happened in our country I, I don't know if that's the reason yeah yeah no no we talked yeah we talked about that that Scorsese's problem as well is that you know the uh, the Oscar voters don't like to be made uncomfortable yeah other snubs I want to talk about um Tom Hardy um I I enjoyed his performance in The Revenant but he's also done some performances that just haven't received any recognition i think he's a good shout for capone yeah capone capone might do yeah because they seem to have more tolerance for like american crime-based drama so maybe that i don't know what they're going to do for the oscars this year i mean i suppose they have to have oscars but they, they have some weird rules about the oscars normally about getting a theatrical release we're going to talk about actors we talked about amy adams not winning yet although you know there is time to correct that yeah peter o'toole and richard burton never won best actor yeah um, Peter O'Toole was unfortunate that his greatest ever performance coincided with uh, Gregory Peck. Some big sort of acting snubs. Angela Bassett in 1993 should have won for playing Tina Turner. Yeah. Um, uh, Sigourney Weaver has never won an Oscar. Um, she's been a bit unfortunate. That you, you get the feeling that one of these days some the, a chance for a supporting actress consolation prize will come her way. I think Emily Watson's been unlucky because she's made some amazing films and not been recognised for it. Uh, Rafe finds missing out to Tommy Lee Jones for Best Supporting Actor. Another snub here, and I'm kind of creeping into... I mean, we talked about Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless, Spotless Mind. I think that deserved more. But um, as well as Malcolm X not even being nominated for Best Picture, I think Straight Outta Compton was um, uh, harshly treated. Yeah. Um, and and the, 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 the thing that they're trying to change now is they're trying to get more and younger voters into the Oscars because I think there's a lot of... 65 year olds who've never listened to hip hop and of course they, they don't give anything to Straight Outta Compton because even though Straight Outta Compton Straight Outta Compton is not a perfect film but it's, it's the perfect music biopic the sort of thing that normally does well yeah and if that had been about the Eagles that would have won some awards <laughs> yeah um, and, and, and that's more there's probably more of an age thing than a race thing there. but if, if we are going to talk about sort of uh, how it's been harder for ethnic minor women and ethnic minorities to do well um, you know not many women have won Best Director. Not many women get to direct the big films. Um, and Oscars tend to go for like the, the slightly larger films. I think Lynn Ramsey was absolutely robbed a couple of times for Best Director. Um, yeah. here's, here's, a, here's a worrying statistic. More white actresses have won Oscars for portraying East Asian characters in yellowface than East Asian actual actresses have won awards at the Oscars. That's a bit scary, isn't it? They do have some odd blind spots. They, they, I mean, we've talked a lot about music. They don't seem to get the music right. You know, yeah. Randy Newman was nominated for Best Song 16 times before he won Best Song, which is even worse than, you know, Roger Deakins taking 14 nominations to win Best Cinematography. Yeah. But, you know, Sam Smith turns up with what is you know, clearly a shit Bond theme, and he, he, he won an Oscar for Best Song. Yeah, and he absolutely butchered his acceptance speech by saying he was, like, the first gay man to win an Oscar. Well, Thomas Newman's never won a Best uh, Best Original Tour. Yeah, that's a bit glaring. Uh, he did Notable, or notable snubs, I should say. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, American Beauty, which cl cleaned that year, didn't didn't win best. Green Mile. So, in terms of injustices, uh, leaving that aside for a second, I I have some nominations for people who won Oscars for the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about Scorsese for um, Departed instead of everything else he ever did. We talked about Pacino for winning Scent of a Woman instead of. He even did a better film that year. I mean, Glengarry Glen Ross came out the same year as Scent of a Woman, and that, that could have won an Oscar. But, you know, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Godfather 1 and 2, all of these things, and he wins it for playing a shouty blind guy. That's mind-blowing. 
Um, that's probably the most clear one. Um, I mean, you already talked about Denzel winning for training day instead of Malcolm X or a number of other things he did. That that probably sticks out a bit as well. Ennio Morricone winning for the Hateful Eight. Yes. There's just there's so many to, to pick from. Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about Danny Boyle winning for Slumdog instead of Train Spotting. Although, you know, Train Spotting's not going to win. Um, you know, while, while the sun goes up and down, uh, Train Spotting's not going to win Oscars. Um, Kate Blanchett winning for anything other than Elizabeth. Again, these a lot of these are apology Oscars. She is really good in Blue Jasmine, to be fair. To be fair, very good in Blue. Jasmine. Yeah, yeah. Again, but it's like, but it, there comes a point where you say, "Look, Kate, we're really sorry. Just make a film. We promise you'll win an award this time." Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's weird ones because if they hadn't given the best actor Oscar to Marlon Brando for The Godfather and given it to Al Pacino, then Marlon Brando would have still won Oscars for On the Waterfront, which is is, is his best performance. But if, if you look at what people win for, I mean, who, what they lost to for Oscars, you know, there's the, the game Six Degrees of Separation and there's the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah. We could probably invent our own game of the reasons why someone won the Oscar they did because, because of someone winning that year. X lost to Y, Y lost to Z, yeah. Z lost to, and 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 you actually realise that the reason all yeah. of these other inappropriate Oscars were awarded was because well, back in 1968 someone made a terrible decision. Humphrey Bogart beat um, Marlon Band Brando for Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah, uh, Humphrey Bogart for the African Queen. Yes, and that's that was a very sentimental win when he probably deserved to win Oscars for for things he'd done yeah. before, and 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 they went, oh, sorry, here you go, here you go, Humphrey. And then because Marlon Brando wins for The Godfather, Al Pacino doesn't win. Al Pacino then wins for Scent of a Woman. I just wonder how, yeah. wonder how far you could take it. It's very it's very contrived and tenuous, but it's... Um... No, you could do it. Denzel doesn't win, for, um, doesn't win for Malcolm X, so he wins for Training Day. Who did he beat out that? Yeah, Muhammad Ali. Will Smith for Muhammad Ali. Will Smith for <laughs> Ali, yeah, yeah. So, and eventually... Fortunately, that I, ends I, there I, because Will Smith has never put another performance like that. Um, apart from yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it dies out eventually, doesn't it? P- pick a pick an injustice, and then and then you can trace it back to a mistake that got made previously. You can certainly trace that back to uh, you know, like Scorsese, all the things that Scorsese didn't win. Well, yeah, and then bonus points if it goes on for as long as it did. So Humphrey Bogart yeah. won that in 1951, and that meant that Al Pacino didn't win his best actor until 1992, yeah, yeah. So a, a butterfly flaps its wings, and 30 years later, um, uh, so w- w- what caused Gwyneth Paltrow then? Let's have a look. Yeah. What happened there? And that, that <laughs> about 22 years because, um, yeah, yeah, the year that Gwyneth Paltrow won, did that stop? Did that mean someone didn't win for another, yeah, Elizabeth? Oh, yeah, fuck, yeah, that's that's 18 years, isn't it? 16, yeah. Yeah, that's mental. Yeah, I mean, Edward Norton sort of misses out for American History X in favour of Roberto Benigni for Life is Beautiful. <laughs> and, the, and the universe still hasn't put that one right yet, so we'll be watching out for that one. Yeah, you can, <laughs> you can feel like something's in the works, and he definitely won that. And Whoopi Goldberg winning uh, for playing a, a kooky medium in Ghost instead of her performance in The Colour Purple is probably a bit glaring as well. Yeah, so I'm on a I'm on a article right now. They put Morgan Freeman top of this list, and then Al Pacino second for actors who won Oscars for their own film. Same argument. Yeah, Million Dollar Baby for Shawshank. Yeah, I think I think I'm looking at the same website. Yeah, and Susan Sarandon's on this list for she won for Dead Man Walking, but this argues Thelma and Louise. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't complain about that. Your skills are fading with age, Mister Randon. You will die a peasant's death. <laughs> she should have won an Oscar for that. She isn't even in it. <laughs> That's all for now from our Oscars chat. The extended, impossibly epic version of this month's James Adamson in conversation with James Adamson will be made available to download soon. If you have any comments on what we discussed or some Oscar injustices of your own that you'd like to talk about, please get in touch via the socials. We plan to be back next month with a niche but hopefully interesting topic of favourite films we were shown at school instead of lessons. Any suggestions from your own experiences are most welcome. Now back to the rest of the Nerdy Podcast magazine. A 
now for the feature I call Hidden Gem, in which I call your attention to a lesser known, less appreciated film that deserves to be seen by a wider audience. The idea behind it is, of course, to encourage more people to watch the film now, but also to imagine what the world would have been like if the film had been the big hit it deserved to be at the time. Is there a parallel universe where this hidden gem rode high at the box office and had a more positive effect on the careers of the people who made it? Would their futures change as a result? And will we get to see different or better films thanks to the success the film was denied in our reality? In episode one, I looked at Blowout, a Brian De Palma classic whose box office failure marked an end to the era of the dark, morally complex political thrillers of the 1970s to make way for more straightforward action and thriller fare in the 80s. A Scanner Darkly was the hidden gem I uncovered in episode two, an example of a film being overlooked in favour of increasingly stale and unimaginative blockbusters. This month I'm looking at another film that not a lot of people have heard of or seen, but it's not such a straightforward case of success or failure as the previous episodes. This film was well received, even though it wasn't that widely seen, and earned its director the chance to make a bigger film next time around. However, I'm going to argue that a bigger showing by this film at the box office would have done this director some good, indirectly over the course of his later career. But even if you're not convinced by this, it's still a terrific film that deserves to be more widely seen. And if you haven't seen it, you'll be in for a treat if you seek this out. The film in question is Ridley Scott's The Duelists. This was his debut feature after a successful career directing commercials, and its decent reception helped him get the job directing Alien straight afterwards. So I would say I have a job to do convincing you that poor, unappreciated Ridley Scott didn't get a fair crack of the whip with this film, or indeed that the parallel universe we need is a better reception for The Duelists, instead of a parallel universe where Ridley doesn't make A Good Year, Robin Hood, The Counselor and Alien Covenant, and doesn't cast Orlando Bloom in the lead for Kingdom of Heaven. So, accepting I'm addressing a sceptical audience, please hear me out. First, the background to this film. Ridley Scott is one of my favourite directors and responsible for Blade Runner, which in four or five out of its known versions is one of the greatest films of all time. He was born in South Shields, just up the road from my hometown. He studied art and design in Hartlepool and later in London, where he got into filmmaking. He started out as a designer for BBC TV programmes and moved into directing episodes of TV series, most of which sadly haven't survived. Then he set up a company to make commercials with his younger brother Tony and contemporaries of theirs such as Alan Parker and Hugh Hudson, and all of that group went on to be film directors in their own right. He made his name with Chanel adverts and especially the famous Old Days Hovis advert, which, watch out fact nerds, was inspired by a short film directed by Ridley and starring his brother Tony. This success got him the chance to direct a film, and his debut feature in 1977 was the film discussed here, The Duelists. Since then he has made his name as a director of great vision and style. His best films, as you will be aware, include Blade Runner, Alien, Thelma and Louise, Black Hawk Down and The Martian. He's never won an Oscar despite receiving three Best Director nominations, uh, and his 2000 film Gladiator won Best Picture and a Best Actor Oscar for Russell Crowe. He's had perhaps an uneven career, with some films that turned out surprisingly badly considering his great talent, but at his best he has few equals. The Duelists is a historical drama set during the Napoleonic Wars, and based on a short story called The Duel by Joseph Conrad. I think the change to the title when they made it into a film was to avoid confusing it with the Steven Spielberg film Duel, about a motorist being terrorised by a truck driver. The story concerns two officers in the French army who fall out and fight a number of duels over the course of 15 years, against a backdrop of early 19th century Europe in the grip of all-out war. The two men are wildly different personalities who take an instant dislike to each other. Lieutenant Ferreau is an avid supporter of Napoleon, from a modest background, who has a reputation for taking offence and getting into disputes that lead to duels to defend his honour. Lieutenant Dubert is a gentleman soldier from the kind of aristocratic family that sees a career in the army as an opportunity for social advancement. Their first meeting leads to a duel which is interrupted and gets both men into trouble. Six months later their regiments find themselves close by each other and Ferreau immediately challenges Dubert to another duel, which Ferreau wins thanks to his greater experience in sword fighting. Dubert takes months to recuperate from his injuries and takes fencing lessons so he can take his revenge. Then, over the course of more than a decade, they meet up and fight duel after duel, obsessed with each other and only interrupted by the endless war all around them. The story of the film, like the source material, takes an ironic look at the futility of war and of the kind of false notions of honour that lead to nothing but conflict. Ridley Scott's inspiration for the film, aside from Conrad's short story, was partly his love of art and great paintings. He, like many people, liked to look at a classic painting of, say, a farmhouse in a landscape and the people working in it, and imagine it coming to life. 
He wanted to make a film where the scenes, whether of battles between great armies, duels between rivals, or just of people bustling around their towns and farms, could almost be one of those great paintings. Some of the scenes and shots directly refer to classic paintings, such as Joseph Sandman's picture of Napoleon in exile on St. Helena. As well as that, he was influenced by Stanley Kubrick's classic historical film Barry Lyndon, which if you haven't watched it is worth seeking out, especially for its amazing recreation of 18th century Europe. Most directors treat their debut films as a kind of calling card, and this calling card marks Ridley Scott out as someone obsessed with getting the visual details right so the story and characters can inhabit a striking and believable world. It's got a very interesting cast, full of recognisable British actors like Edward Fox, Albert Finney, Robert Stevens, Tom Conti, Diana Quick, Alan Armstrong and Pete Postlethwaite making his debut. Scott made perhaps the unusual choice of casting American actors in the two lead roles, Harvey Keitel as Faroe and David Carradine as Dubert. This was probably to help them market the film internationally and in America. And this isn't the kind of film those two actors normally do, but they're both very interesting actors and give really good performances. Younger viewers might only know Keitel from insurance adverts, but actually he had a really varied film career, especially early on when he went to make films in Europe and elsewhere outside the United States, which were quite different from typical Hollywood films. But even for him, this was a departure, the most unusual choice of film and character he's made, except maybe for when he played Judas Iscariot in The Last Temptation of Christ. The main reason I'm calling this out as a hidden gem is that it doesn't often get talked about, despite being one of Ridley Scott's very best films. Of course it shows the stunning visuals he's known for, but it also shows how well he puts his visual flair to work telling the story and bringing the characters to life. He perhaps had an unfair reputation for style over substance until Blade Runner finally got the proper showing and critical evaluation it deserved, but the better films of his later career, which bring powerful stories to life, should have come as no surprise to people who paid attention to The Duelists. You start out following this violent and obsessive rivalry between two men who hate each other, and then you get immersed in the living, breathing world they inhabit, the regimental life, the towns and countrysides of Europe they live, travel and fight in while the Napoleonic Wars rage around them. Then you feel the impact of the story, which is about a lot more than the two central characters. The endless, pointless fighting between the two of them is essentially the same as the endless war ravaging Europe that doesn't seem to have any point to it anymore. The penny really dropped for me when the two men find themselves caught up together in Napoleon's catastrophic retreat from Moscow, his army more or less destroyed and paralysed in a horrific Russian winter. And almost with their dying breaths, the two leads still want to continue their never-ending duel. Their arrogant, obsessive need to keep fighting each other also represents the divisions in France at this time. Faro embodies the supporters of Bonaparte whose hatred of the old, monarchist, class-ridden French regime makes them bitter and endlessly belligerent. Dubert embodies the arrogant, snobbish aristocracy looking down on the lower classes and guaranteed an easy life because they have family connections and know how to behave at posh social functions. As good as Ridley Scott is and as much as I love him, it's not all that often that the perfect idea combines with his great visual storytelling to such perfect, perfect effect. When he has the right script or idea, and I know he doesn't always, there is almost no one out there to match him. For those of you who like Ridley Scott's other films but aren't familiar with this one, I can't recommend it highly enough. And if you're discovering this, a great Ridley Scott film that you've never seen before, you're in for such a treat, and I'm jealous of anyone watching this for the first time. In terms of the film's performance, it did okay. It didn't get anywhere near the box office top 10, but it did $2.5 million in the US compared to a $900,000 budget. Not bad numbers for 1977. And it was well-reviewed and won Best Debut Feature at Cannes, so it's not really a failure. Certainly not, given it helped him get his career-making job directing Alien. So while it's worth catching up with it, can I really argue that it deserves its own parallel universe and would have changed everything if it had? So I know this isn't the same as the previous two hidden gems I looked at, and I certainly couldn't say definitively that more success for this film would have made Ridley Scott choose more wisely when it came to some of his later failures. Um, a lot of that is down to him being a bit hit and miss when it comes to choosing the right material to film in the first place. But I will say this, if this had been a bigger hit, Ridley Scott would have perhaps had a bigger reputation when he was making Blade Runner. Two big hits instead of one. More credibility as a serious storyteller when he's arguing with the producers of Blade Runner and the crew about what he was trying to do. A better outcome there might have meant less time for Ridley Scott out in the cold, trying to rebuild his reputation in Hollywood. 
It's also important for filmmakers to be rewarded for the right things. There's a school of thought, for example, that Al Pacino winning his Oscar for a shouty showboating role instead of some of the immaculate work he did in the 70s turned up the volume and ham on his subsequent performances. Perhaps more attention for the duelists would have reinforced for Ridley the need to have a solid story and interesting world when he was making Legend, probably his biggest dive into the pitfall of style over substance. A less flimsy basic concept and more credibility in his track record perhaps would have helped him get his two-hour version of that film released instead of the 90-minute version we got and the original music instead of it being turned into an extended promo video for Tangerine Dream. Certainly, more success for a strong narrative film might have encouraged him to fix the script flaws in 1492, as much as I still like that film. But I won't pretend this would have changed everything. This isn't my strongest argument for a different outcome in a parallel universe. What it is, though, is a much less well-known film which deserves to be better known. It's a great film by a great director which is out there waiting for you to discover it. I strongly urge you to seek it out. Now I'm going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole in the feature I call The One That Got Away. This is where I talk about films that famously never got made, but I wish they did. In the parallel universe where things turn out the way I want them to, what would happen if an unmade film actually got made and everyone's subsequent careers were different? My previous entries in this feature were John Carpenter's attempt to adapt Stephen King's Firestarter and Quentin Tarantino's ideas for a Silver Surfer film. In those, Carpenter was fired relatively early on in the process, and Tarantino only got as far as writing a script that was turned down by a studio. This month's One That Got Away is a film project that got much further down the track than that, and whose legacy can be seen in at least five other films which actually did get made. This month's One That Got Away is David Cronenberg's Total Recall. There's a lot of material on this particular project, and as well as the interviews, articles, and concept art I found online, I'm indebted to two film writers for background on this project. Firstly, a very nice man called Bill Florence, who used to write for Cine Fantastique magazine, who I was able to track down an email. He kindly sent me copies of articles he wrote about Cronenberg and Total Recall, which pretty much everyone else who wrote about this project has relied on as a source. In addition to him, there's a very good book called Tales from Development Hell by David Hughes, which covers this film among others. He relied on Bill Florence's articles as well, to be fair, but he also got an interview with David Cronenberg, which provides his side of the story. Now, obviously, there are versions of Total Recall which did make it to the screen. The first was one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's best films and biggest hits. That film emerged from more than 10 years of development hell, during which Cronenberg was hired to direct and tried to get his version made. Then there was the piss-poor remake that I discussed in episode 1 of the podcast. Total Recall is based on a Philip K. Dick short story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Arnie's version is a very good example of someone taking ideas from Philip K. Dick's source material and turning it into their own film. The result is a properly top-draw Arnie film, a terrific sci-fi action thriller, because as well as the good old-fashioned ultra-violence, we get some smart ideas and sly satire. It was directed by Paul Verhoeven, who did a similar job here as he did with his previous film Robocop. But there were a number of different versions of the film in development before Schwarzenegger got hold of it and knew it could be fashioned into the perfect vehicle for him. The first and most interesting was the one David Cronenberg worked on. But first, let's go back to where all this started out. Philip K. Dick, who I discussed on the last podcast, was a pioneer of science fiction writing who specialised in mind-bending ideas that blurred the lines between reality and dreams, hallucinations or memories. Made famous by the adaptation of one of his novels into Blade Runner, his work's been a fertile source for filmmakers looking for intriguing ideas. Among the first to take their bucket to the well were Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett. Now, those nerds among us who like to delve into the credits and really scrutinise the backs of our DVD cases will recognise those names. They were behind the story and script of Ridley Scott's classic Alien. But before that film happened, back in 1974, Shusit bought the rights for a bargain $1,000 to the short story that eventually became Total Recall. Dan O'Bannon had just finished working on John Carpenter's debut film Dark Star, which featured the arrival of an alien creature on a spaceship with a small crew that was cute and kind of funny. He had an idea for a different version of that storyline with more expensive special effects and the alien being a terrifying homicidal creature. That became the script for the movie Alien. They got in contact prior to that and agreed to work together, first on Alien and then on Total Recall. Alien came out with Ridley Scott at the helm and became a sci-fi classic as well as a classic of horror, suspense and amazing set design and art direction. This got them the money and support to move forward with Total Recall. 
but the idea was not as straightforward as Alien and took years to develop. For a long time they worked on ideas for the Total Recall script and had designers and artists working on visual ideas for sets and creature effects and so on, but it was a bit unfocused and wasn't really going anywhere. David Cronenberg, meanwhile, had been making his name with a string of eye-catching horror films that combined body horror and psychological horror. His favourite themes tended to revolve around physical and mental transformation and people being infected, often sexually, with terrifying and gory results. His early films are cult classics now, the most well-known of which are Shivers, Rabid, The Brood and Scanners. Scanners famously featured a spectacular scene in which an evil villain with psychic powers uses telepathy to make someone's head explode. Clearly this kind of thing is not for everyone. And the outraged response to one of his early films got him kicked out of the apartment he was renting as the lease included a morality clause. But the skill and style with which he made these films got him international recognition. American stars James Woods and Debbie Harry signed up for his next, more ambitious film, Videodrome, which had as much body horror as before, but began to really play around with reality in the human mind. Now, fun fact, one of David Cronenberg's early collaborators who produced a couple of his films was fellow Canadian Ivan Reitman. Reitman is much more well-known for mainstream comedy, so it's odd to see his name come up as a producer on films like Shivers and Rabid. He's most famous for directing films like Stripes and Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters we'll be discussing later in the podcast, as well as Twins and Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who ended up doing Total Recall. So it's a small world, isn't it? Having made his name with this singular vision for horror and suspense, David Cronenberg got a big break directing a Stephen King adaptation, The Dead Zone. I touched on this briefly in the first episode during the feature on John Carpenter's Firestarter. It's not a typical Cronenberg film without really any of the gory or mind-bending subject matter he's known for, but it's a very good Stephen King adaptation, one of the best of that early horror era, and showed what Cronenberg could do. He's a bloody good director, just very talented with a camera, but also a very smart man and good at making source material like a novel or story work properly in a film script. As luck would have it, the production company behind The Dead Zone was run by Dino De Laurentiis. He was an Italian film producer, a legendary and larger-than-life character whose career goes back to post-war Italy. By the 1980s, he had a pretty colourful reputation, and while he was also behind more prestigious films like David Lynch's Blue Velvet and a version of Mutiny on the Bounty, most of his films were big and garish genre films like the 70s King Kong remake, uh, Flash Gordon and Conan the Barbarian. His company was producing Total Recall and funding Schusser and O'Bannon's development efforts. The great job Cronenberg did on The Dead Zone with De Laurentiis helped him get the job on Total Recall. Cronenberg recounts doing at least 12 rewrites of the script Schusser and O'Bannon had developed. The team of designers the production had set up in Rome immediately found they had new direction and fresh ideas for the sets, creatures, look and style of the film from Cronenberg. A lot of what ended up in the finished Arnie film came from ideas Cronenberg brought to the project or that were developed while he was in charge. However, after more than a year working on it, there were too many disagreements between him and Roland Schusset and De Laurentiis over what kind of film they were trying to make. Cronenberg quit the project. After a number of further changes in direction and attempts by other directors, Dino De Laurentiis' production company went bust and Arnie pounced. He'd had his eye on the film for a couple of years and knew it would be the perfect vehicle for him to achieve megastardom. Cronenberg went on to make The Fly instead. That turned out to be his biggest hit, and in many ways the perfect vehicle for Cronenberg to try his luck in the mainstream. The story was tailor-made for his style and themes, and also showed how good he was at delivering an emotional story for his central characters. David Cronenberg has said in interviews that he doesn't regret leaving Total Recall, where he was constantly battling with people who had a different vision, and instead making a film that was a great success for him. But you can't help wondering what might have been. The version of Total Recall we got to see is a terrific film, but fans of Cronenberg and of Philip K. Dick see this as one of the great lost opportunities, to see what a truly great director, who specialises in the kind of altered realities that the author was known for, could have done with this film. The problem for Cronenberg had been that right from the start, he and Ronald Schusset had very different films in mind that would be difficult to reconcile. For whatever reason, that didn't come out when they first started working together on the project, and didn't come to a head until much later. Schusser always had in mind a film that would have plenty of action and excitement. With that in mind, perhaps Cronenberg would seem a strange choice, but, to be fair, David Cronenberg's previous films had been exciting and eventful, and he'd even done one action film in his early days called Fast Company. Cronenberg is very proud of what he did on Fast Company, and was not averse to action and thrills at all, and it was clear that he would deliver some striking visual ideas for the film that would set it apart the way Ridley Scott's visual flair elevated Alien. 
What they didn't have prior to Cronenberg joining was a clear idea of exactly what to do with the story. This is not surprising as the original story by Philip K. Dick is only 23 pages long and consists pretty much of only the central idea. Douglas Quaid, or Quail in the original, is an ordinary working man with nothing exceptional about him who dreams of being a secret agent on Mars. He goes to a company called Recall who provide a unique service that can plant a memory in your brain of anything you want. That feels as real as if you actually did it. He pays them to implant his Mars memory, but it all goes wrong when it turns out he really did used to be a secret agent on Mars who had his memory wiped for mysterious reasons. It's almost like the first couple of chapters of an unfinished story and invites you to imagine a number of different ways it could have gone. Shuset and O'Bannon knew that their version of the story would need to involve Quaid then going to Mars to find out more about his past, but the ideas they had of what happened next weren't quite working. Their early version of the story does include the part where Quaid goes to Mars and finds out more about his past activities as a spy and his mission there. This is in all versions of the film that were worked on. But what unfolds then in the original version is quite different. Their main character finds out that Quaid was killed and he is actually the lookalike replacement made by the Mars Resistance. He's actually a synthetic being containing the DNA of the original Martian race that was wiped out when Earth colonised it. So he becomes not only the leader of the Resistance, but the godlike leader of the entire planet. That ending didn't really work, because while it's a big reveal, it didn't provide the opportunity for a big climax or showdown. Cronenberg's work on the script provided a stronger narrative, and a lot of his own ideas, um, which were inspired by the original story. He introduced the idea that Quaid would find out about who he was before his memory was wiped, and be horrified, and not want to go back to being that person. This survived in the version of Total Recall we finally got to see. A lot of the visuals from the Cronenberg version also made it into the final film. The scenes on Mars of the city and ancient ruins are very similar. The mutants on Mars and the telepathic oracle living on the body of one of those mutants was his idea. And some great depictions of uh, how much of this is real and how much is imagined. Some of which did survive to the Arnie version. A great example is the scene, apologies for spoilers, where a doctor is trying to convince Arnie that he's imagining the whole thing, and if he starts killing people, he'll be lobotomized. Arnie isn't sure, starts to doubt everything around him, and then a single bead of sweat rolls down the doctor's face, giving the game away. But a lot of it was very different from what we eventually got to see. While the visual ideas of the mutants and city on Mars and the ancient ruins and pyramids of the original Martian people came from him and looked similar to the final film, Cronenberg's ideas were darker, stranger, and in many ways more striking than the more conventional version that Arnie and Paul Verhoeven made. There is some great concept art from Cronenberg's time on the project which is available online and shows you the difference. Coato, the telepathic oracle which we see in the Arnie version, is in the film for longer and looks and behaves differently. There are sketches of a transformation scene where Coato transforms from a living person into a stone artifact that looks like the ancient Martian ruins. The visual effects um, in Cronenberg's uh, designs don't have the slightly cartoonish feel of the finished film, although to be fair we never saw how his turned out. And the sets and cityscapes of Mars have an eastern flavour, with domes and pillars like a kind of futuristic version of Istanbul. And the city seems less like a standard sci-fi set, and more like something where bricks and steel have been built onto something alien and alive. There are scenes in the sewers under the Martian city featuring mutated creatures that live in the water down there that look really strange and terrifying. A number of characters have guns hidden inside their bodies, which is a classic David Cronenberg touch reminiscent of his earlier film Videodrome and his later film Existence. There are also ideas and events in the script that are quite different from the final version. There is a scene which reveals that Quaid's face has been changed and his real self looks different, so maybe he can't trust what people look like in this reality. He is told that he's actually an all-powerful planetary dictator, which is why so many people want to kill him. It's then revealed that that dictator persona is just a fictional invention by the film's villain Cohagen, who was using Quaid as a puppet with him as the real power. But mainly it's a question of emphasis. In the Arnie version, there are questions over whether Quaid really remembers this or is imagining his past, or if he's imagining what's happening to him in the story. It's well done, but it's more of a quick plot point than anything, and you don't get much in the way of Quaid not being able to believe what he's seeing and feeling. Cronenberg wanted to go much further into that and show shifting realities and a central character's psychological dilemma. And of course, the central character was not going to be played by a big action superstar like Arnold Schwarzenegger, which can't help but make for a different kind of film. Cronenberg's first choice to play Quaid was William Hurt, the Oscar-winning actor who was perhaps a less obvious choice for the lead of a big science fiction film. 
He has done some sci-fi work, including his first film Altered States and a film a decade later called Dark City, both of which have similar themes that play with reality and madness. He's also featured in some Marvel films as Hulk's antagonist. At this point, Cronenberg and Shusit were on the same page about a lot of things, despite disagreements on the tone and mood they were trying to convey, and both hoped with William Hurt that their vision for the film would be represented. Cronenberg would have a great expressive actor who could convey Quaid's struggle with memory and reality, and while William Hurt isn't a big action star, he is quite a big bloke and could have pulled off a few fights and chases. This would be key to how the project panned out with Cronenberg in charge, because while Cronenberg and Shusit had come to an understanding, Dino De Laurentiis made it very clear he wanted a big spectacle of a film, as he always did, and disagreed with many of Cronenberg's ideas for more psychological side to the story. But the idea of William Hurt fell through, at which point Richard Dreyfus became attached. Now Richard Dreyfus is a great actor, and I sang his praises when I discussed the original version of Firestarter that he was going to star in. But he's five foot five, God bless him, and not the person you look to for action films. This really narrowed down the options for Cronenberg, as Dreyfus asked for rewrites that removed any scenes where he would get into any kind of fighting or physical stuff at all. That pushed things further and further away from being the action film the original producers wanted, and really highlighted the divide between them and Cronenberg that had been there all along. It all came to a head at that point. Schusset recalls that Cronenberg was struggling with what kind of film he could now make with the project where it was. Cronenberg recalls a script discussion where Schusset said the problem was the director was trying to make the Philip K. Dick version of the story. Well, yeah, said Cronenberg. Schusset said that what he wanted was basically Raiders of the Lost Ark on Mars, and Cronenberg said he'd wished he'd known that before he spent all that time making a completely different film and left to make The Fly instead. Cronenberg recounts that a couple of years later they were still struggling to make Total Recall and Dino De Laurentiis came to Cronenberg again to ask him if he'd reconsider coming back onto the project, but he'd had enough and turned it down. The film was about to happen with a really different team. Bruce Beresford, the Australian director who has done things like Tender Mercies and Driving Miss Daisy, was hired and actually started pre-production with Patrick Swayze in the lead role. Unfortunately, that was just before De Laurentiis' film company went bust, so the project collapsed. Schwarzenegger finally got a chance to work on the film, having known about it and lobbied for a part before. The rest, so far as the version of Total Recall we got in our world, is history. Arnie's version was a huge success, the biggest blockbuster of the year, despite being one of the most expensive films ever made at that point, and featuring violence, gore, nudity and language that got a 15 certificate over here and an R rating in America. Ah, the good old days. Cronenberg had commercial success of his own with The Fly, then did a series of more independent films. He has tended to struggle to get commercial success for his brand of filmmaking. That certainly would have been different if he'd been able to make more headway on Total Recall. He did, however, revisit a lot of the themes and visual ideas that inspired him to try and make Total Recall in the first place. His surreal masterpiece Naked Lunch features an amazing recreation of the author's idea for Interzone with an Eastern or North African feel and insectoid creatures that share some similarities with what he created for Total Recall. His late 90s film Existence built on some of the body horror themes he'd used in Videodrome, but also were a chance for him to express ideas he had on Recall. The virtual reality where no one can be sure if what is happening is real or still in the game they are supposed to be playing, the merging of living bodies and buildings and technology, implants into the human brain that change their perception, these are all in total recall in his version and he expressed them in other films. And after that he did a film called Spider, where the central character has got a shattered memory and can't be sure if what he is remembering or even if what he is seeing is real or imagined and what kind of person he really is. That's also very much the theme that Cronenberg was trying to explore in Total Recall. These films give a tantalising glimpse of what might have been, but show in a way that his time on Recall was well spent, as it inspired ideas that he made into several other great films. Not only that, he left a significant mark on the Arnie version of Total Recall. A lot of what worked about the story in Arnie's version, and which made the film interesting and different, came from David Cronenberg. And it turned out the team that did the 1990 Total Recall tried to make a sequel, in which some of the telepathic mutants from that setting are used to solve and predict crimes. While this didn't work out, the work they put in led them to option another Philip K. Dick story that eventually became Spielberg's Minority Report. That wouldn't have come about without the ideas that David Cronenberg put in. So of course I would love in my imagined parallel universe for David Cronenberg's Total Recall to have happened. He's without question a great director, and someone whose films you should check out if you haven't seen them. And if you want to imagine what his Total Recall would have been like, you have a lot to work with. 
As well as the visuals from the Arnie film, you can watch Naked Lunch, Spider and Existence for a start, and probably check out Videodrome and Dead Ringers as well, all of which make for an amazing weekend's viewing, albeit quite a serious mindfuck. There is one question though. In previous episodes I discussed versions of Firestarter and Silver Surfer that I would rather have been made instead of the actual versions we got. What about Total Recall? Would I rather have this and not have the Arnie version? I think the answer to that is no. The Schwarzenegger version of the story is great. Not only that, I wouldn't have wanted Cronenberg to do Total Recall instead of making The Fly. And I wouldn't want the successful realisation of his ideas for that project to mean that he didn't then go and make the other films they inspired. But to add this to Cronenberg's filmography without taking any of his other films away, and for both versions to exist side by side of Total Recall, I would love that. And it would be a very fitting outcome for a Philip K. Dick story. Two realities, and who's to say which one should prevail? And of course it would be great if in that parallel universe Total Recall gave Cronenberg more credibility with the studios and more success to boost his career. It could have led to more support and exposure for Spider, Existence and Naked Lunch, which sadly didn't quite get the success they deserved. That would lead to a richer, darker, stranger world of film, which would be all the better for it. The closing feature on the podcast is the Remake Hate Watch, where I highlight the one type of recycling that the world shouldn't do, which stinks and makes its environment worse. While remakes are not a new phenomenon, the recent troubling trend of remaking everything while new ideas get harder and harder to make is slowly killing cinema as an art form. Of course, franchises and sequels are a large part of this as well, but the underlying problem is Hollywood no longer be able to come up with fresh ideas. The worst part of this lack of originality is the endless production line of remakes. In the interest of balance, there are some excellent remakes. I mentioned Sorcerer and The Fly on this month's podcast, and there are other good ones out there, especially in eras where there was more original filmmaking and remakes needed more justification. If you were to draw up a list of your favourite remakes, I would bet that only a minority of them were made recently, and most of the worst remakes are very recent. This segment allows me to let off steam about this frustrating phenomenon and make the argument as to why these remakes are bad for cinema. This month, my potentially controversial pick for a remake hate watch is the 2016 reboot of Ghostbusters. Now, before we start, it's impossible to avoid the political and online furore that had erupted when this film was announced and which was still raging when the film came out. A lot of extreme right-wing nutters who support Donald Trump and seem to want the world to descend into apocalyptic feudal madness and nasty little trolls who like a bit of violent misogyny, made the Ghostbusters into a cause celebre. A lot of them seemed to think that the problem was the Ghostbusters were women this time, and abused and threatened the cast of the film. There was a lot of extra hate and racism for the black actress in the main cast, Leslie Jones. A lot of people were furious about this remake above all other remakes, even if they weren't prepared to admit that the women Ghostbusters were the thing that had pissed them off. All of those people can fuck off. If you're listening, switch off. Delete the podcast. Fuck off. Go and take your face for a shit. I'm only interested in talking to the grown-ups, so you control the fuck off back under your bridge and into your stinky little man caves. But in the course of fucking off, can you please make sure to slap yourself quite hard in the face in the hope of knocking some sense into you for each of the following appalling remakes that you didn't have any comment or criticism for even though you had time to get into a froth about Ghostbusters. Total Recall, Point Break, Ben-Hur, Conan the Barbarian, Get Carter, The Lady Killers, Robocop, The Wicker Man, The Pink Panther, The Hitcher, Straw Dogs, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Footloose, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Carrie, The Fog, Psycho, Rollerball, The Italian Job, Planet of the Apes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Arthur, The Invasion, The Karate Kid, Sergeant Bilko, Miami Vice, Death Race, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Omen, Diabolique, The Bachelor, The Wolfman, The Dark Universe Mummy Remake, The Vanishing, Clash of the Titans, English Language J-Horror Remakes, Papillon, and The Jackal. Right. Now we're going to have a sensible grown-up conversation about the Ghostbusters remake. And the first thing I have to do is acknowledge, very clearly, yes, it's shit. I understand why some people want to defend it, because the people who made the film are, are good and talented, and the reaction the film got was really extreme. But Ghostbusters 2016 commits all the same mortal sins as other remakes I hate, and it's fundamentally bad filmmaking. It gives me no pleasure to say that, because I like pretty much everyone else involved normally. 
But just to get into the background, Ghostbusters, much like the original 1984 film, is the story of a group of paranormal scientists who come up with tools and plans to capture and control ghosts and paranormal phenomena at the exact point when New York City seems to be turning into the most haunted place on Earth. We follow their comedic adventures as they take on various creepy and slimy creatures until they eventually have to face a much bigger threat. The 1984 original was the brainchild of Dan Aykroyd, who co-wrote the script and played one of the starring roles. He was writing it while he was still part of the huge American comedy show Saturday Night Live. He says that his blues brother partner John Belushi and fellow SNL star Eddie Murphy were his original choices to be in the cast, although accounts vary. But the main actors were all connected to Saturday Night Live in some way, and they collaborated on a fairly new type of film, a special effects heavy action comedy blockbuster. It was one of the most expensive films made that year, and the biggest hit of the year, and even had a theme song that was a huge number one hit in the charts. A sequel followed, which wasn't as good, but it still did well at the box office. The remake followed over 30 years later in 2016 and assembled another crop of big stars from Saturday Night Live and a well-known director of comedy films in Paul Feig. The Ghostbusters team would be played by Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones. The announcement that the new team of Ghostbusters would be female attracted controversy and the film was getting negative online reviews on places like IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes before it was even released. When it was released, it would have needed to be pretty good to get over that initial negative reaction, and unfortunately it wasn't. It was crap, and it lost money at the box office. So why is it such a bad film? Firstly, because it was made at all. In 1984, the original Ghostbusters was a new idea. No one had made a film like this before, really, and it was probably a bit of a risk on the part of the studio. Not every attempt by SNL stars to break into film has worked, and the first Ghostbusters film required a massive budget and special effects on a par with Star Wars. Fortunately, the comedians had had some successes before and were big enough names to swing it, and they got their shot. Sadly, in the mid-2010s, the chances of a new comedy story getting a blockbuster-sized budget were absolutely minuscule. It has to be part of or a remake of an existing franchise. Hence why a new generation of talented, big-name comedians from America's biggest comedy show was saddled with exactly the same idea as over 30 years before, instead of getting the chance to do something new. And if that had been the attitude back then, we wouldn't have a Ghostbusters film. It would have been like Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray back in the 80s trying to make a film and only being allowed to do a remake of the 1952 Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis hit, Sailor Beware. So that's problem one. There was still a way this film could have succeeded. If, of course, we're all being terribly unreasonable to ask Hollywood executives to greenlight new ideas and accepting that we have to go back to old stories. It might have worked if it was some kind of continuation of the first film. A member of the new cast could be the daughter of or a die-hard fan of the original team, whose exploits exist in the reality of the new film. Perhaps after the events of 1984 Ghostbusters, I'm not too fussed about the sequel, society gradually forgot or deliberately cut out any memory of what happened because ghosts and all of those strange phenomena were just too weird to contemplate. The new team is picking up the torch and carrying it for the original team. They don't want those heroes to be forgotten. As well as paying a bit more respect to the original film, you would have a lot of uh, chances to have a new story, because the new team would have knowledge of the first set of events and need to do something new or different this time. But unfortunately, that's not what you get. You get the same old thing. But if you're going to do this, especially knowing that a female cast would attract extra scrutiny, why such an unimaginative retread of the first film? As always happens when a remake goes down this route, they keep the basic plot of the original, but they don't have all the same details. That always ends up being weaker. You don't get Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man or Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis becoming possessed. You get weak replacements of those original ideas, which is shit. But, just to be clear, it's only as shit as every other time an unimaginative remake has done this. It's not worse because there are women and black people getting to be on screen, by the way. It's just the same. Most tellingly, this production was no one's first choice in terms of what film to make. I don't imagine the actors and director wanted to do this above all else. And uh, the people behind the Ghostbusters franchise, they've been trying for years to make another sequel to the original. But Bill Murray didn't want to take part. This film was most likely the result of the studio admitting defeat and saying, oh, well, let's just do a reboot. If they had tried harder to do something new, like that storyline where the old Ghostbusters are retired and this is a, a new team with their own motivations, perhaps they could have been more successful. They could have made a joke out of the fact that Bill Murray didn't want anything to do with the production. They could have paid tribute to the late Harold Ramis, who passed away before this film came out. But that's not what happened, and it meant they were going down the wrong path right from the start. Add to that, the, the script and basic story are a bit broken. 
A lot of the tension and conflict revolves around one of the characters being a scientist who doesn't want to acknowledge that the paranormal exists. That just doesn't work, because the audience knows we wouldn't have a film if they aren't going to portray events in which the paranormal very much does exist. It works even less well as soon as the paranormal starts existing all over New York, so it was a pretty poor choice and fizzles out. The antagonists and the villain aren't very good either, certainly not as good as the original. I suppose you could have done more with the ideas they had of an occultist who wants to bring about a demonic world, and authorities who recognise the Ghostbusters in private but uh, denounce and distance themselves from them in public. But these ideas aren't new, and if they're going to work, they need quite tight and, and, and clever handling. Contrast with the original, that had a script that might have been all over the place when Ackroyd started out, but they rewrote it and tightened it up and made sure it worked before they started filming anything. It also has the problem of being poorly directed, uh, and I was slightly surprised by that, because the film Paul Figg did directly before this was Spy, which hit all the marks required of an action comedy. I really enjoyed that. And his previous effort, The Heat, wasn't bad either. But somehow he failed to repeat the trick this time. It was more like his previous film Bridesmaids, which had a number of drawn-out comedy scenes based on awkwardness or gross-out stuff. Now, in my humble opinion, that film had a bit of an uneven tone. It was broad knockabout comedy one minute and more character-driven the next. It wasn't a problem for Bridesmaids overall, I suppose, because it was a well-reviewed hit. But crucially, it didn't have the extra plate to keep spinning, which was to maintain a suspenseful action plot as well as all of that. Ghostbusters needed that, and it didn't work out. Paul Feig followed Ghostbusters with a film called A Simple Favour, which is excellent, and Last Christmas, which was poorly received. So maybe it's just a case of him being a bit inconsistent and prone to the occasional bad day at the office. Where the poor direction of Ghostbusters is most noticeable is in the performances of the actors. This is unforgivable, really, given the people he had in his cast. The four main actors are all very talented, and I've seen them be good and funny in other things. But it really doesn't work here. There is a complete lack of structure and discipline to almost every scene. And the film has absolutely no pace as a result. Whatever the situation, we get lots and lots of little routines and bits by each character. There's no judgment of the scene where the director should have been saying, here we can linger a while and have a comedy bit, but here we need to move on to the action. And if there is anything funny or played for laughs, it has to be while there is some running around, blowing stuff up and moving the narrative along. It's like they formed a musical supergroup featuring four lead guitarists, each of whom has to have their own extended solo in every song, and all the while the audience is getting numb and wants to go home. I don't actually blame the actors for this. There's always a fair bit of improvisation and ad-libbing in, in modern American comedy films, whether it's Paul Feig, Judd Apatow, or the, these vehicles for Will Ferrell and Ben Siller and people like that. The cast needs to be able to get stuck in and try different bits in each scene. But in the edit room, someone needed to be a lot more disciplined about what to keep in, and the director needed to literally direct the cast towards the story a lot more. This is a great shame, to be honest. I like this cast, and I've enjoyed watching them in other films. I have no problem with the idea of this cast being in a big comedy film together. But not this, and not so poorly done that they're hung out to dry like that. Overall, I think the film fell down at the first hurdle, by choosing to be no more than a rehash of the first film and not bringing fresh ideas to the table. This made the script worse. This in turn meant that the story didn't have enough good stuff in it, so it's no surprise that a lot of scenes feature the actors straining to come up with something funny, because they aren't getting any help from anywhere else. It's an even bigger shame, of course, that too many people have taken the wrong lesson away from the failure of this film. The film didn't fail because of that pesky politically correct brigade wanting more women and minorities to have a chance to make films. It fell because the same idiots in charge presided over another crap remake like all the other crap remakes, and they don't give enough opportunities to new people and new ideas. So let's reclaim this film from the bigots and morons who hijacked it and take it back. Unfortunately, we're just taking it back to the dustbin of movie remakes, where it does still deserve to be. Well, that's what I thought of Ghostbusters and the controversy that surrounded it. I don't know if I've poured cold water or flaming napalm on that particular hot potato. Good job this isn't a cookery podcast. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Special thanks again to James Adamson for joining me for a special guest interview. I wrote, presented, edited and mixed a podcast using Audacity and Anchor FM. They're very intuitive and user-friendly tools, so anything that sounded good was down to them and anything that sounded crap was down to me. 
The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. The Duelist is available to buy on DVD and Blu-ray, but it's a bit pricey at the moment. It's cheaper to rent or buy on the main streaming platforms like Amazon, Google Play, Apple and so on. There's a wealth of material available online if you'd like to dig deeper into David Cronenberg's Total Recall. For the full three-hour story of the making of Total Recall, there's a podcast called Projection Booth, which covers it on episode 418. The concept art I discussed is on a website called Gizmodo. Bill Florence, whose journalism was so crucial to the telling of this story, now runs a photography business in Arizona. I'm not sure how many of my audience are based out that way, but if you are, I urge you to get in touch with Bill for all your photography needs. The full-length interview with the two James Adamsons will be made available soon as a bonus episode if you want to hear what we've left out. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Hopefully you'll tune in next time. Until then, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media.